Now, one of the repeated themes that comes up in this passage is the idea of Jesus being a king. But of course, since he's been crucified, it's very obvious that he's not the type of king that they would have expected in the ancient world, and certainly not the type of king that we would expect. Now, the prominence of the king in the ancient world was, was enormous for a nation. Um, for us, of course, today, our, our monarchy is ceremonial, and depending on where you are, whether you're you know, more of a, a nationalist or, or not, then you have different feelings about the queen and the, and the monarchy. But for them, in the ancient world, the king was a symbol of strength. The king was the strength of the very nation. And so the identity of the people in the ancient world was bound up with their king, with their ruler. Their sense of order in the world was maintained by the authority of the king. So status, identity, a sense of order and control, all of these things were bound up with the identity and the nature of the king. But for Israel, of course, they only had a puppet king, Herod. They were ruled by the Romans. Um, They were a, a vassal state. And so for them, their identity had taken a pounding because they no longer had that independence. They didn't feel in control. They didn't feel like they had status. And look, I wonder just as we um, come to this passage whether or not some of us are feeling something of that at the moment. We've had a difficult period, and wherever we're at as we seek to emerge out of lockdown, we might be feeling a sense of disorder, a lack of control. We might be feeling that our identity has taken a hit as we've not been able to meet with people around us, maybe as our jobs have come under threat. Our very sense of status has been undermined. Our earth has been shaken in many ways by the virus. Of course, it might not just be the virus. It might be difficulties you're experiencing at home or with loved ones. Maybe you're worried about the health of someone, and you long to have that sense of control. Um, maybe it's the, being in lockdown has raised some profound questions for you about who you are, and you're trying to work out your identity. Well, either way, as we look at this passage, this is raising the question for God's people then as it raises for us today, What does it mean to have Jesus as your king and to have him giving you the identity, the status, the sense of order in your life that we all long for? Well, to understand that, we're going to need to see three things this morning. First of all, we're going to see what Jesus as God's king is really like. Then we're going to see the enthronement of God's king and then the cleansing of God's king. Let's look first of all at the nature of Jesus being God's king in verses 116. In the passage, one of the things that is going on is this to and fro, this backwards and forwards, asking the question, who really is in control? And you see it because Pilate is the most senior official representing the Roman Empire, the mightiest empire at the time in the ancient world, and he's overseeing Israel. And yet, he comes across in the passage as a curiously powerless individual. Verse 6, as soon as the chief priests and their officials saw him, that is Jesus, they shouted, crucify, crucify. But Pilate answered, you take him and crucify him. As for me, I find no basis for a charge against him. The Jewish leaders insisted, we have a law, and according to that law, he must die because he claimed to be the son of God. When Pilate heard this, he was even more afraid. And then verse 12, from then on, Pilate tried to set Jesus free, but the Jewish leaders kept shouting, if you let this man go, you are no friend of Caesar. Anyone who claims to be a king opposes Caesar. So there's a battle of wills going on, but Pilate is afraid of those he's in authority and in power over, right? Pilate, this symbol of might and power, the representative of the Roman Empire, can't even control a few religious leaders. He's fearful, and ultimately their cries for crucify prevail. 
So is Pilate in control? Is he the one who's the real king? Clearly not. But then we've got the Jewish leaders. Well, it's curious how as we go on, how it um, concludes. They seem to be the ones in control. They seem to be the ones getting their way. But look at verse 15. But they shouted, take him away, take him away, crucify him. Shall I crucify your king? Pilate asked them. We have no king, they say, but Caesar, the chief priest answered. That is an astonishing thing for a Jew to argue. On one level, they want emancipation from Roman rule, but when the chips are down, they confess that they have no king but Caesar. In other words, they're happy to be under foreign rule. They're clearly not in power. So Pilate's not in power? The Jews aren't in power? Well, who does that leave? There's only one other party in the text, Jesus. It's curious that Jesus basically does nothing and says only one thing in all of these verses. In other words, he is almost entirely passive. All of the activity, all of the talk, 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 so much talking to try to get their way, to try to get their will, is coming from other people. Jesus just has one thing to say, verse 11, and it's incredibly significant. He says to Pilate, you would have no power over me if it were not given to you from above. Therefore, the one who handed me over to you is guilty of a greater sin. From then on, Pilate tried to set Jesus free. He only says one thing, and notice what it's about, who has the power. And he makes it very clear to Pilate that Pilate, for all of his apparent political might, does not have the power. No, no, the power that Pilate has has been given to him. It's not something which he possesses in and of his own right. It's been given to him from above, from a higher authority, from a heavenly authority, from a heavenly king. Question, who is that heavenly king? Who has given Pilate that authority? Well, the text answers it for us. Verse 3, and went up to him again and again saying, Hail, king of the Jews and they slapped Jesus in the face. Verse 14, Pilate says, here is your king. Verse 15, Pilate asks, shall I crucify your king? The text is really clear that Jesus is the king. Jesus, for all of his inactivity, is in complete control. And we know that as well, because if we'd been reading through John's gospel, we know that in John chapter 12, Verse 23, Jesus prophesies his death. This isn't something that is being done to Jesus. This is something which Jesus is complete control of. He knew that to go up to Jerusalem would be to go to his death. He determined to go to Jerusalem knowing that it would result in his death. He was in complete control. And I think the point that is being made here is that so often we as human beings to get caught up in worldly power. We look around, we say, who's got the power? Who's the most powerful person in this relationship in my group of friends? Who really has the power in the office? You know, who can make my career go or make it fail? On the estates, who's the most important person? Who has status and reputation? We're always asking that. We're always kind of surveying the room and trying to figure it out. And in this interaction, we see that the very person who looks most humble, most weak, most like the victim, is actually the one with all power and authority, because that's what the nature of heavenly power and authority is like. Napoleon was a person who knew a lot about power, of course. He presided over an empire, and yet he famously said these words to one of his generals as they were discussing real power. 
I know men, he said, and I tell you that Jesus Christ is no mere man. Between him and every other person in the world, there is no possible term of comparison. Alexander the Great, Caesar, Charlemagne, and I have founded empires. But on what did we rest the creation of our genius? Upon force. Jesus Christ founded his empire upon love. And at this hour, millions of men would die for him. That's power. So I don't know, where do you look at the moment? Control, as you feel your life might be spiraling a little bit. All of the questions about the future. I was just talking to my parents last night. They live in France. They've gone back into lockdown. Any plans that we had for seeing them seemingly dashed. No control there. Status, as you, you ask questions as we emerge out of lockdown, you know, and you get back to your job and you get back into the office politics maybe, or you start moving back into your friendship groups and you feel a bit insecure and awkward at first. Where does status and identity come from? Don't look to the world. Look to Jesus. Jesus the King. Secondly, let's look at the enthronement of God's King in verses 17 to 27. Where does Jesus' power come from? Is he, if he is the heavenly king, from where does he get his power? And what I want us to see in these verses is that he gets his power from the cross. He gets his power, ironically, in a curious but beautiful irony, from giving it all up. Verses 19 to 21. Pilate had a notice prepared and fastened to the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this sign. For the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city. And the sign was written in Aramaic, Latin, and Greek. In other words, so that everybody could read it. The chief priests of the Jews protested to Pilate, Do not write the king of the Jews, but that this man claims to be the king of the Jews. Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. John draws this detail out because, of course, the title above Jesus makes the point. He is the king of the Jews. But where do you see his kingship? Where do you see his kingliness? Not that he resides in some palace. Not in some great act of conquest, of winning a worldly war. But you see it in this most remarkable event. As he's stripped, as he's hung up on a cross, as he's humiliated and scorned, and as he's left to die. This is the enthronement of Jesus, the king and to make the point, we have in verse 24, the um, soldiers are dividing up his um, clothes and garments, and then they say of his seamless woven-in-one-piece undergarment, let's not tear it, they said to one another, let's decide by lots who will get it. This happened that the scripture might be fulfilled that said, they divided my clothes among them and cast lots for my garment. That's a quote from Psalm 22. It's a psalm written by David the king. And the point here is that this prophecy coming hundreds of years before the death of Jesus Christ is saying that the one who dies on the cross, the one whose clothes are divided, and as they cast lots for my garment, that is the king. In other words, this king is recognized not by his glory, but by his humility. Kings are about glory and elevation, aren't they? but the cross is about shame and humiliation. Kings are about power and might, but Jesus is dying in weakness and frailty. Kings have a crown and a royal robes. Jesus wears nothing, 
humiliated, exposed, just a crown of thorns. In other words, the cross shows that Jesus is not just the king, but he's a king that's unlike any other. He gets his power by giving up his power. He is glorified by being humiliated. He wins by being a cosmic loser on the cross. That is the nature of Jesus' kingship, the enthronement of the king. I love um, bedtime stories. It's great at the moment to be getting to that point with the boys where I can read them bedtime stories. I'm currently reading James and the Giant Peach with them, and um, they're really enjoying that. Uh, There are some lovely old stories. One of the ones I've not read to them yet, but I'm looking forward to reading to them, is The Princess and the Goblin. It's a slightly obscure one. It's also very long. Um, But in The Princess and the Goblin, there's a young miner. He's a strapping miner. He's obviously the one you think who's going to be the hero of the story. And he gets captured by goblins and taken down deep into the mines where he's imprisoned. And part of the wonder of this story is that the people who have power in this story are not those who, um, who, who seem obvious. And so this miner, even though he looks like the hero, has to be rescued by the princess. This was written generations ago. Isn't that affirming? And so it's a wonderful story that the princess is the one who goes and rescues him rather than the hero rescuing her. And the way she rescues him is she's given a golden thread by her grandmother. And so bravely she goes into the dark mines where the goblins are and she unwinds the golden thread so that the curdy can find his way out of the mines. And she gives him the thread and then he has to follow the thread out of the mines. And as he comes out of the mines, many, many times as he's he's holding the thread, it seems to take him the wrong way. He hears goblin voices, and yet the thread's pulling him over there. And he thinks, I can't go that way. But he knows that he's only got one option, which is to hold the thread. He can't see in the mines and to trust that this is the way out. And ultimately, he does trust. And ultimately, he is delivered, and he does come out of the dark mines. And the goblins don't get him. And I think the point that is being made in the story, in that curious moment, is that... When we realize that things aren't as they seem, when we realize that power is not as it seems, then we have to trust. This strapping young miner has to trust. He can't see. He can't fight. He doesn't know whether he's going to get out. He just has to hold the golden thread and hold on, hold on, and keep following it. My friends, is that not what it's like to follow the Lord Jesus Christ? So much in this world says, if you want power, follow this path. If you want glory, follow this path. And Jesus curiously gives us a golden thread of faith and says, follow this. And it leads us down some strange avenues. Very often it feels like it's leading us very much to the things we're most afraid of. But think of it this way. If Jesus' path to glory was humiliation, if Jesus' path to power and deliverance was through weakness and through giving everything up, then what do you expect as a follower of Jesus? Don't you expect that your path will be similar too? And look, I know at the moment that for many of you, as you're following the thread, you're saying, Lord, I don't want to go down that cavern. It's dark down there. I'm scared of what it holds. But Jesus is saying to you, follow the thread. Keep trusting me. Follow the thread. And put it this way, if he really is the king, infinitely wise, infinitely good, And if the cross is, as you know it to be, the greatest hour of shame which has turned to the greatest hour of glory, then don't you think you can trust him? Is there any difficulty or darkness in your life that he cannot turn to light? Is there any pain that he can't redeem? Follow Jesus. 
What are you looking for? For control? Do you think if I can just control my environment, then I'll feel secure? Jesus says, give up that. Trust me instead. What are you looking for? For identity, saying, if only I get this, then I'll feel fulfilled. Jesus says, come to me, my friend. Give everything up, and you'll find fulfillment like you've never realized. What are you looking for? For status, longing that people would approve. Jesus says, come to me. Hear the approval of the one who really matters, your Father in heaven, and be released from being enslaved to people and their opinions of you. Jesus is the King. As the words of the hymn put it, judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. His purposes will ripen fast, unfolding every hour. The bud may have a bitter taste, but sweet will be the flower. So the king, the enthronement of the king, lastly, the cleansing of the king. Now, each of the gospel writers pick up on different things um, in the um, passion accounts in the death of Jesus, but I want you to notice what John particularly picks up on with some curious details that are unique to John. Verse 31, it was the day of preparation, and the next day was to be a special Sabbath because the Jewish leaders did not want the bodies left on the crosses during the Sabbath. So they asked Pilate, have the legs broken and the bodies taken down? The soldiers therefore came and broke the legs of the first man who had been crucified with Jesus, and then those of the other. But when they came to Jesus and found that he was already dead, they didn't break his legs. Instead, one of the soldiers pierced Jesus' side with a spear, bringing a sudden flow of blood and water. The man who saw it has given testimony, and his testimony is true. He knows that he tells the truth, and he testifies so that you also may believe. These things happen so the scriptures will be fulfilled, not one of his bones will be broken, and as another scripture says, they will look on the one they have pierced. John zooms in on this particular and slightly strange detail of when Jesus' side is pierced, that blood and water flow out. And in John's gospel, the theme of water is enormously important. Think of the woman at the well and Jesus' promise to her that if you come and trust in him, you'll have streams of living water. In other words, you'll have this gospel renewal in your life, never ending. Think of Jesus standing in the temple and claiming to be the one who can wash away sins uniquely as they remembered the exodus, this cleansing that comes. And so Jesus, as the king, is not only the one who gives up all power and authority for us so that we might know and be able to trust in him, but Jesus is the one who dies so that we might be cleansed. And that's why he picks up on that prophecy from Zechariah, the prophecy about they will look on the one they have pierced. Because in that passage in Zechariah, when we looked at it a couple of weeks ago, you'll remember that it was talking about a fountain cleansing and washing away all sins. In Roald Dahl's children's book, The BFG, the worst nightmare of all is the troggle humper nightmare, which is explained as this. You have to look on what you've done, and you realize there's no forgiveness. That is the worst nightmare, to look on what you've done and to realize there's no forgiveness. Well, Jesus Christ says, look on what you've done and realize that there is free and total forgiveness if you trust in me. Because when he dies on the cross, on the cross his side is pierced, and out of his side flows blood and water. Now, there's physiological reasons for that, but the spiritual reasons for it are that his blood is a cleansing blood that his death is a cleansing death, and that when he dies on the cross, the fountains are opened, the fountains of cleansing. I think one of the hardest things about lockdown over the past 12 months or so has been, strangely, not all the restrictions, but I wonder it's this, 
that we've been forced to spend more time with ourselves. You know, all the stats are that mental ill health has gone up as a result, that relational dysfunction and breakdown has happened as a result. And why is it that we as human beings, when we're forced to spend more time with ourselves, do we find that often very, very painful and difficult? Is it not? Because we know that we've done things in the past. We know that as people, we're not what we should be. But what would it be like if you could give all of those things to Jesus? If you could say, take it all. Take my past. Take my present failings. Even take my future failings. Take it all, Lord. Wash it clean. Take the stains that I don't want you to see that I protect all the time. Take them, Lord. Wash them. Don't sweep them under the carpet. Help me to look them in the face. Realize the wrong I've done, but to know that it's forgiven, to know that I'm cleansed. Is that not ultimate liberation? If the worst nightmare of all is to realize there's no forgiveness, does that not mean that the greatest of all dreams is to realize there's forgiveness for everything you've ever done wrong? This is the cleansing that the Lord Jesus Christ brings. On the Mount of Crucifixion, fountains opened deep and wide. Through the floodgates of God's mercy flowed a vast and gracious tide. Grace and love, like mighty rivers, flowed incessant from above. And heaven's peace and perfect justice kissed a guilty world in love. As I close, Jesus' death was a cleansing death. Jesus' death was an enthroning death when he was proven to be king. And so the question is then, will you trust him with that? I wonder if you saw in the last little details, we have this curious details of the burial of Jesus. And then there's a man who turns up at the burial of Jesus. He was accompanied, verse 39, by Nicodemus, the man who earlier had visited Jesus at night. We haven't heard anything about Nicodemus since John chapter 3. Enigmatic character. A chief priest who's so worried what people will think of him. Control, status, identity, that he scurries to Jesus in the dead of night. And Jesus says to him, Nicodemus, you must be born again if you want to have your sins washed away. You need a new start. And we're left with that cliffhanger. What happens to Nicodemus? Well, here's Nicodemus. He's had chapters to think about it, chapters to meditate on what Jesus said to him. And he's come to the decision that now in broad daylight, he will come and identify with Jesus, trust in Jesus, and no doubt, receive forgiveness from Jesus for all that he's done. He trusts Jesus. He gives up all of his control, all of his status, all of his identity, and he says, I'm identifying with you. And this Good Friday, that's the question for all of us. Will we? Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, how we praise you for the death of the Lord Jesus Christ and how we, we need it, Lord, we need it. How we need to see what real power looks like, not thin worldly power but the glory of the cross, how we need forgiveness and our sins being washed away. Help us to trust you to follow that golden thread of faith wherever it may lead us, to be like Nicodemus, to identify with you that we might in you know you as the king, you as our savior, you as the one who restores us. We ask it for your namesake. Amen.